Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. And tonight we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 23 as we continue on in the book of Ephesians. Paul's letter to the Christians in Ephesus, a church that you know he established, and even after he left, a church that he was vitally concerned with, wanted to make sure that they were growing in grace and was pleased to hear good reports, but wanted to bring to them encouragement throughout to talk about the, uh, the true value of their salvation, the importance of it, and the source, obviously, of that salvation. But these things were not just written to the Ephesians long ago. They were also written to us in this age and indeed to Christians in every age to come. So let's uh, go before the Lord now. Let's ask for his blessing. Please join me. Sovereign Lord, I do pray now that you would help me to open up your word and to exposit it aright. I confess I can't do so unless I have your power in me, unless I have the Holy Spirit guiding me, dividing the word aright. I pray, Lord, that I would say nothing to these, your sheep, that is not in keeping with your word. Let me not lead them astray, but instead let me build them up. Lord, we live in an age where we too, like the Ephesians, feel like a minority, and we feel like we are under assault at times from every direction. And our three great enemies seem very, very powerful, but I pray now, Lord, that we would take what Paul is saying here to heart, and that we would not be ruled by our circumstances any more than the Ephesians were. Help us to remember that Christ has the victory and help us to remember the power that he wields. Now, Lord, make us attentive. Open our eyes and ears and help us to understand these things. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen and amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 19 through 23. I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he has put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament will know that the people of Israel did not immediately march from Egypt into the promised land, uh, their way strewn with flowers and with praises and hallelujahs shouting as they uh, neared, and then they weren't welcomed in by the, uh, the people who dwelt there. Neither did they find any of that easy. In fact, the first time they approached, you remember, the borders of the promised land, they took a look at the people who dwelt there. They took a look at the size of the fortifications that they had. And they looked at uh, possibly some of the Anakim, these giant warriors of whom uh, the most famous was Goliath. That's right. And they said, we are just grasshoppers by comparison. We have no chance whatsoever of ever taking over this land. We're all going to be killed. We're marching to our deaths. And so they became uh, wildly frightened. They looked with the eyes of this worldly sight and they saw what seemed to be an insurmountable obstacle. And so most of them balked at the idea of going in. And then after the Lord had said, okay, don't go in, they said, no, we're going to go in. Uh, They were rebellious and stiff-necked people, but of course they were driven out. Well, 
what was it that was going to make it possible for a people who uh, just a generation earlier had been freed slaves from Egypt, a people who had been living in the wilderness, a people who were not, uh, the Lord himself uh, announces, the largest of the nations nor the mightiest nation in and of themselves. What was it that was going to be a, enable them to stand against the Gentile peoples of the nation, uh, the country that they were going into. These people who were outwardly mightier than they, these people who hated them, uh, the people from whom they had already turned back 40 years ago, how would they overcome them? Well, Moses doesn't say we're going to start a, uh, a new training program, we're gonna make a new model army, or we're gonna create a special forces command, and through a series of targeted raids, we'll gradually undermine their morale, we'll destroy their logistics, and then sweeping in from the left, there'll be a lightning strike that he doesn't do any of that. Rather, he gathers the people and he tells them what their real power is. In Deuteronomy 31.6, he says to them, be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Then Moses called Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and of good courage, for you must go with this people to the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall cause them to inherit it. And the Lord, he is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. You have no power, yes, Israel, not in yourselves, but in God you do. You have the mightiest power conceivable. The creator of the universe is the one who goes with you. He is your head. He is your commander. And it is his power that will sweep the peoples from the land that he desires to give you. And so Joshua, when he, after the death of Moses, was leading the people into the promised land, he said to them, have I not commanded you be strong and of good courage? Do not be afraid nor be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This, this continuous refrain is that the power that will give you this land, the power that will bring you into possession of it, the power that will make God's promises fulfilled in your lives is the mighty power of the God whom you serve, not your own power, not your own ability, not your own ways of dealing with different situations. And in fact, Joshua then, after they had gone in and they had defeated five kings mightier than they, and he gave them an object lesson in what the Lord would do with all those who stood against the kingdom, all those who stood against God and his people. In Joshua 10:22. Joshua orders them to open the mouth of the cave in which the, uh, these kings are being kept prisoner. And we read in verse 23, And they did so and brought out those five kings to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. So it was when they brought out those kings to Joshua that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the captains of the men of war who went with him, Come near, put your feet on the neck, necks of these kings. And they drew near and they put their feet on their necks. Then Joshua said to them, do not be afraid nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Joshua is actually giving them in that, uh, that display a lesson. The Lord will put all your and his enemies under your feet. It doesn't seem to be possible, but he will cause you to triumph. He will bring you who seem so weak in the eyes of the world and in your own eyes as well. He will bring you the victory. And as we've been going through 1 Kings in the morning, you saw how it was in the reign of Solomon that that 
was brought to pass, that they were entering, they had entered into a golden age in which they did have dominion over the land and all of the people were under their feet, literally. And how would that happen? It had happened because the Lord had made it possible. It wasn't their power that did it. It wasn't that they had chariots or they had uh, cavalry better than the, uh, the people in that particular area or they had hired mercenaries who were stronger or any of those things. It was that the Lord was with his people and he had raised up leaders, these, uh, these uh, antitypes of, of, or rather these types of Christ, not antitypes, types of Christ to lead the people and to fill them with confidence and to tell them the truth, which was that they were God's people. Now, why do I make note of all this? Well, because Paul, believe it or not, in his own time, is trying to do the same thing that Moses and Joshua did with the people of Ephesus. And God, through, obviously, the word that he gave to Paul back then, is trying to do the same thing with his church in every age, including you guys, or sorry, we're in the South, y'all. We're all uh, still in very much the same situation when we think about it, aren't we? I mean, think about what was going on in Ephesus here. As Paul's writing to the people of God in Ephesus, he's writing to people who are mostly converts from paganism who had become, by their very conversion, minority outcasts in their own city. They no longer worshipped the same gods. They no longer celebrated the same festivals. They no longer did things like going to the shrine prostitutes. And they seemed very weak. And all about them was the power of the world. You had the immense temple of Artemis that people from all over the Roman world would come and visit. You had the Roman government that was hostile to any sort of religious movement that had not been authorized. At this point in time, the Romans weren't yet distinguishing them from the Jews, but they surely knew that with the, the way that the Jews hated them, that it would soon be the case that they were, and indeed, after the Jewish rebellion, uh, the Christians were made an illegal religion. And this was around them all the time. And everyone feared, that is, everyone in Ephesus feared the power of the sorcerers, Men like uh, Simon Magus in Samaria who had, you remember, he had been called the mighty power of God. He'd been converted, certainly, but he was just one of many kinds of sorcerers. There was Elymas, the sorcerer in Cyprus that Luke writes about in uh, Acts 13.7, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. And this sorcerer attempted to withstand them until, of course, through the power of God, he was struck blind. Uh, it was a situation prevailing in that time, very much like the, the fear of the witch doctors, which is, is heavy even within the Christian community. You can, you can feel it when you go there. There is this, this fear of spiritual powers and principalities and so on that lies over the land, and it affects even the Christians heavily. But it wasn't just the world, the flesh, or rather the world and the devil that they had to deal with, but they also had to deal with the temptations of the flesh, they had to deal with the enemy within, the uh, remaining remnants of corruption that would impel them in the wrong dis, uh, directions, that would, would say to them inwardly, wouldn't it be better just to compromise with the world? Uh, couldn't we do a little bit of the festivals that they do? Couldn't we, you know, uh, does God really care if, you know, it's, a, it's an event that everybody's going to, why can't I go? Or the gladiatorial games or so on and so on. 
And then, of course, there were divisions within the body of the church. There was the uh, inevitable tension between the Jewish converts and the Gentile converts. How could they remain in one body? What hope did they have against all of these things then that were against them? And Paul here tells them, don't you understand? You have the power of God at your disposal. It's not that you were suddenly changed by some sort of rational decision and now you have to try to live in this world in your own power. Don't you understand, Christian, the same power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that changed you. It's not a moral reformation that took place. It's the almighty power of God that moved within you. As God raised Christ from the dead, and has set him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That same Christ whom Stephen saw at the right hand of God. Even as he was about to be stoned. He has changed you forever. He took you who were dead in sins. And he's made you alive. And he's raised you up together with him. And so you, under, you need to understand. You need to understand your connection to the resurrection of Christ. And here I'm speaking to you as well. You need to understand your connection to the resurrection of Christ. He, that is Jesus Christ, had undergone a great change. He had been brought back to life from death. He had, he said, the ability to lay down his life and take it up again. And he did so. The greatest power possible had made that a reality. But now... You have undergone a great change as well. You have been brought to life. You have been raised from the dead by the same almighty power which wrought that change in Christ, giving him physical life again. That same power that did that is the power that brought you out of darkness and into light, out of death and into life. And there was as great a difference in them as there was in Christ in the tomb and Christ after his resurrection and ascendance to the right hand of God. Do you understand that though? Do you understand the amazing nature of what's happened within you? So often Christians don't. They feel powerless. They look at the world and they see it as more powerful. They look at the things that are against them in this world. They look at the tribulations, the sad providences and so on. And they say, greater is he who is with them than he who's in me. I, I don't have enough power to face them. But Paul says, no, you, you, you don't understand. He made the same analogy when he's writing to the Colossian Christians. In uh, Colossians 2.11, he writes this, in him... You were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. The same power that raised Christ from the dead has raised you from your spiritual deadness and darkness. And so what the Apostle Paul is doing is he's comparing the spiritual resurrection of believers with the resurrection of Christ. And he says it's due to the same divine power. Now, he wants them, and God wants you, to know that the conversion of a soul 
bringing it from death to life is not a small matter. And it's not a work that can be affected by human power. It is not the case that we persuade men to believe through good arguments. Resurrection, spiritual resurrection, is due to the converting power of God. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, faith is no such easy matter as our opposers imagine when they say, believe, believe, how easy it is to believe. Neither is it a mere human work which I can perform for myself, but it is a divine power in the heart by which we are newborn and whereby we are able to overcome the mighty work of the devil and of death, as Paul says to the Colossians, in whom ye are raised up again through the faith which God works. Chrysostom wrote, the conversion of souls is more wonderful than the resurrection of the dead. And in many senses it is. Brothers and sisters, it is the profoundest change. Because it's a change not just in nature, and it is a change in nature, it should be. If you've been brought from death to life, if you have that new heart, you have new, a new will, new affections, but it's also a new destiny, and that's of critical importance to understand. A new future. You are headed in an entirely different direction. You who were once dead in your sins and trespasses outside of Christ, who were headed inexorably towards hell and destruction and eternal torment and punishment that was well-deserved have been forever turned out of that path. And you now are walking the road to glory and to final victory as well. So many, I mean, we we talk about the victorious Christian life. The, The victorious Christian life is something that actually will break upon us the moment that we die, the moment or the moment that Christ returns. We have that victory, though, already. There's an already not yet. You're going to hear that a lot as we go through Ephesians. I apologize. But there's an already not yet to all of this. You already have the victory in Christ. He's won the victory. The mopping up operation obviously continues, and sometimes it's, it's very dark. Sometimes it's as difficult as the Battle of the Bulge appeared in 1944 to the Allies. They thought they were, they were on their way to driving straight to Germany. No problem. We just cross a few bridges. Boom, we're there. And then suddenly Hitler unleashed upon them an offensive they never expected. But he had no power left. And he used up what few feeble remaining resources he had in that failed attempt to break their ability to to get at him and to try to take back the port of Antwerp. It did not work. And so all of the things that the devil launches, at times they seem to be absolutely overwhelming. At times our enemies do seem to be in the ascendancy, but they're not. We are living, as I said, in that mopping up time. And we're going to talk about uh, a bit of eschatology. We're going to be talking about where we live, which is this present evil age. But Paul has already spoken in Ephesians here of that which is to come, the age to come. And we'll talk about the differences between them. But the thing he wants them to know is you are part of the body of Christ. And so therefore the same, same power that raised up Jesus and brought you, brought him from death to life is not just the power that has raised you to new spiritual life, but the power that will put all things under his feet. And when you are in him, You are reigning with him. Now, he is reigning at the right hand of the Father already. We may not perceive that already, but he is in charge of all things. And there is a day coming when, of course, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. We will see the reality that already is throughout the universe. We wait for that day with great anticipation, but we know it's getting nearer and nearer. 
It is, uh, it, all of this takes place, incidentally, there's some wonderful in the, in the Greek, and I'm not going to labor it because my, my Greek is terrible as it is. But um, in verse 19, uh, the phrase actually uh, that's translated here, uh, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power? Uh, according, and then this phrase, according to the working of his mighty power, that is, uh, according to the energy of the might of his power, iscus, kratos, energeia, uh, or if you want the Latin, uh, Latin rover, potentia, officia. Um, Calvin said uh, that the first is the root, that is, um, uh, the inherent strength, and the second is the tree, that is, um, the, the power that's in it. And then thirdly, we see the fruit, the exercise or the efficiency of that strength. God's power always affects what it means to. So it, it has potentiality and efficacy associated with it. So what the apostle wants, what Paul wants, is for them to have open eyes so that they're able to, to see the fullness of their inheritance, not just that they won't be overwhelmed. We have that wonderful promise, don't we, from the Lord, that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But sometimes we forget gates are defensive. The enemy does not attack throwing gates at people. It is rather that even hell itself, the powers of darkness, will be broken down by the church. God uh, as Hodge put it, has at his disposal as great a power as he exhibited when he raised his son from the dead and set him at his right hand. It is as if the apostle were saying, do not despair, you can rely on God's infinite power. One day the inheritance held in store for you will be fully yours. And all of it will be because of that same power that raised Christ from the dead. And there is this continuous, within Paul's writing, because of the importance of it, this continuous dwelling on the matter of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it means. It is the key element. Paul points to that just as surely as John pointed to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Paul points to the resurrection and says, Behold the power of God that frees you from all sin. And says to you, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is working in you glory. You have an inheritance now incorruptible, set aside from you. Because you are united to Christ. He is the head. You are the body. And so your future is set, not just your rising from the grave after you die, not just your restoration and resurrection, a body made perfect. Uh, it's something that I, I look forward to more and more every day. I was walking into the, uh, into the, the room and I discovered a new pain in my, my ankle and I'm like, okay, that's there for forever. But it isn't there forever, okay? It's there for this present evil age. But it's something that's going to go away because of who Christ is. Now, all of this is possible because the one of the one who has done this for us. It's possible because the one who is being exalted here, the one who God worked these things in and through is Christ the Theanthropos, the God-man, a mere philosopher, a religious leader, could never have done these things. The Bible, the New Testament in particular, makes no sense if Jesus is not God. If he is not the second person of the Trinity, then all of the things that Paul assures us we have, we can't have. Because an angel can't sit at the right hand of God. It was funny, we, uh, I, I was 
um, going through uh, some laundry in the laundry room and I, I spotted a, a paper on the floor and uh, it was addressed to my son. So of course, being the good father that I am, I set it aside and said, no, this is his, I will not read it. No, I didn't, I opened it up and I, I read it because I'm <laughs> a fallen father. Uh, it, it turned out it was a form letter from a Jehovah's Witness who had simply gotten his name and had written to him, but presuming that God is not all-powerful, that God is not in charge of the universe, that God is not bringing all things to pass, that when harm occurs, it's because the devil's in charge. And that and there's no mention whatsoever of Jesus or his power. But she wanted him to take a look at JW.org and become a Jehovah's Witness and believe that the devil is in charge of the world at this point in time. If I believed that, I would despair, honestly. I would despair. I can't believe that there are people who are walking around who not only think that the number of the redeemed is filled up as Jehovah's Witnesses do, because it's only 144,000, and there were 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses a long time ago. Incidentally, something to do on your porch, and I'm here, I'm going down a rabbit trail, and I, I, um, I apologize, is you can talk to them about those numbers. Okay, the Bible, you believe that 144,000 is the literal number of the saved, the elect. It's only 144,000. And you know, they'll say, yes, absolutely, because the Watchtower organization tells them that that's the case. So you can say, how about those thousands of people who were saved in the apostolic age when you said that everything was right? Like on the day of Pentecost. And you can gradually start adding to the numbers. And you're like, so we have to subtract uh, 4,000 at least from the number of the, the Jehovah's Witnesses, right? Which 4,000 do you think that was? The ones at the end or the ones at the beginning? And, you know, after a while, they'll be like, uh... You know, you can actually build it up. There, there had to be at least 144,000 believers in the Roman Empire by the time John died, right? So there are no Jehovah's Witness believers. Maybe one or two, but, you know, it's, it's foolishness. And these are people, and they go, to, they go from home to home telling them, you can live as essentially the sheep ruled by the elect in the new heavens and the new earth. But you don't have eternal life. You can't take the Lord's Supper. You don't, I mean, it's an awful system. But people buy into it. Foolishness. What is that? That's just the prognostications of men. That's what the power of men can do. But there's no offer of eternal life really there. Nothing. But what Paul is saying here is that because Jesus is the God-man, he is in charge of everything. He rules over all creation because God took to himself our nature, was born of a virgin, born under the law, born in Bethlehem. And then went to the cross because he is God. He was able to pay the price of our salvation and then to rule over the world. He is able to do that which only God could do. No angel could do this. Only he had the right to sit at the right hand of God the Father. And Paul makes this point. He says of Christ which he worked in Christ, this is verse 20, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Christ is above every prince, every potentate, every king, every ruler, every angel even. The greatest of all created things is as nothing compared to Christ. For as Paul says in Colossians in chapter 2, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. He's in charge of everything. Not just will be in charge of everything, already is. 
reigning, interceding, bringing all things to pass. And his position of majesty will last forever. We just wait, so to speak, of, for the consummation of all things. As I said, you know, I'm going to be hitting you with that, all, that, uh, that reformed phrase that comes up too often, already, not yet. We live in the, the not yet. We haven't got the fullness of the cons, uh, uh, consummation. But as we've seen, Paul's been pointing out, you already have the down payment. You have everything. And everything will inexorably come to pass. But why is everything still so messed up? John, you remember, sends his disciples to Jesus asking, I'm still in jail. I, I believe they're probably going to cut my head off. Are you the one, the one to come or should we expect another? Are you really the Messiah? Because I'm not seeing the fullness of God's promises that the prophets made. I don't see the kingdom in all of its glory and splendor around me. I'm still in Herod's dungeon. Jesus answers him by pointing out that all of the signs that the prophets said the Messiah would do, he had done and that he needed to have faith in him. We wait for the fulfillment of the kingdom promises. That comes in what's called the age to come. We are living in this present evil age. That's how Paul called it in Galatians 1.4, who, uh, speaking of Christ saying, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. This present evil age lasts from the time of Christ's ascension to the time of Christ's return. That will be the end of this present evil age. And everything that the fall has done wrong in the universe will come to an end then. And then we come into the age to come. Jesus spoke of that in Luke chapter 18 when he said, So he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. Paul is saying that everything that is going to be accomplished, will be accomplished because of who Christ is. He will rule, not just in this age, but in that age which is to come. And he will have dominion over all things, not just all things in the church, but the entire world, the entire universe, every part of it. There will be nothing over which his dominion is not expressly exercised. And because we are in him, he's the head, we're the body. When God puts all things under Christ's feet, he is, and believe this or not, he is putting all things under your feet as well. Not because you're so glorious, not because you're so great, not because you're part of a mighty nation or anything like that, but because of who Christ is and who you are in him. Do you know that is who you are? Do you know that is the future that you're looking forward to? So often we despair because we expect, and honestly, so many Christians live as though this present evil age will go on forever. Darkness, 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 darkness. There's a movement called full preterism, which is uh, heretical, blasphemous, and awful, which, which says that Jesus has already returned. There is no physical resurrection of the body, and this is the new heavens and the new earth. Again, as with the Jehovah's Witnesses, I would despair. If that was truly the eschatology that's taught in the Bible, I would turn in my Christian card immediately. Let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, and there is no resurrection. Death continuing on forever? No, brothers and sisters. Yes, if, if this was all there is, we would have a right to despair. We would be forever, like using that C.S. Lewis analogy, like those kids in the alleyways making mud pies because we don't understand 
what a trip to the, the seaside is really like. Living in half light, living in half life as well. Not really ever having the fullness of the promises given to us. But because all things have been put under Christ's feet, because the energy that raised him from the dead, the power that raised him from the dead is present and working in you as well, if you are in him, then you have nothing to fear. Your future is as assured as Christ's future because the body and the head are never going to be severed. Now the head is in heaven, but the body will be as well. You have nothing to fear from the future if you are in Christ. He has put all things under the feet of Christ. And he will put all things under the feet of Christ. And you will reign with him if you are in him. But we need to remember that these promises that Paul is making are not to those who go to church. Certainly not to the entire population of Ephesus. He's not writing that to them. He's writing specifically to those who are, remember, in Christ. We discussed the importance of the phrase faith in Christ. We have placed our faith in him. We trust in him. We rest upon him. He is our all in all. And he lives within us through the Holy Spirit's working. That's the power that the Christian has. And so... Paul, uh, not Paul, sorry, (laughs) very different from Paul. Charles Hodge writes this, and I, I really want you to take this to heart in terms of whom do these wonderful promises about that, that new future and the age to come, who do they belong to? Hodge writes this. He says, this is the radical or formative idea of the church. From this idea are to be developed its nature, its attributes, and its prerogatives. And the entire book, you remember, is about the church. So Paul is going to be drawing out of the redemption that Christ has worked and his continuing rule and who he is and who we are in him. He's going to be talking about the nature of the church, the ecclesia, the assembly. Uh, He says it's developed its nature, its attributes, and its prerogatives. It is the indwelling of the spirit of Christ that constitutes the church's body. And therefore, those only in whom the Spirit dwells are constituent members of the true church. But the Spirit does not dwell in church officers, nor especially in prelates as such, nor in the baptized as such, nor in the mere external professors of the true religion, but in true believers who therefore constitute the church, which is the body of Christ and to which its attributes and prerogatives belong. There is a glorious future in store for all those who are in Christ dominion, there is happiness, there is an end of sickness, there is the great promise that we will see our Savior face to face and always be in his presence, that we will live in a new heavens and a new earth. And the proof of that that Paul points to constantly is if God had not raised Christ from the dead, we might, we might have doubts. But now Christ is risen. And so too, you who are in Christ will rise with him and will not just rise with him, but rule with him. But that's the critical, critical point, isn't it? In Christ, you have to be in Christ. The promises are only to you if you are in Christ, not in church, not in Christian family, not merely baptized. Now, there are many who who say, well, you know, I, I, I don't know. Uh, uh, it, 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 all seems, it all seems too wonderful. It all seems too, you know, I'm, I'm glad you've got this faith and so on, but uh, I'm going to trust in what I see. Life in this present fallen age, 
this evil age, as Paul puts it. That's where you want to place your trust. This is where you want to live forever. I'm glad I'm not a citizen of the world. My citizenship is in heaven. That's where I know that I will be. And how do I know? It's not just a, it's not pie in the sky. It's not a hope that I have. I know that I will spend eternity in heaven more surely than that I know that the sun will rise tomorrow. I can tell you that. Certainly, I know it better than that I will draw breath tomorrow morning. How do I know that? I know that because Christ is risen. I know that his resurrection means absolutely the resurrection of all who are in him. And because he has made me his, because he has put his love in my heart, it's not that we loved him first and then he loved us. It's rather he loved us, in fact, before he created the world. Because of all of those things, because of all of the prophecies that are fulfilled, because of the truth of the word, I know I can trust Christ. I know that he wasn't lying when he said, I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. I know for an absolute certainty that he has gone to do that. And therefore, I need not worry about what is to come. I do worry, though, about those who are here. I do worry about those who have not yet put their faith in Christ. I know I'm not supposed to be anxious for anything, but I can't help but feel anxious for those who I know have not yet closed with him who are not trusting in him, who are trusting in, in the promises of, of science, the twisted science that we see at work today. We're putting our, our faith in, in a system that doesn't even know that men can't get pregnant anymore. That's where we're going to put our trust. Worldly philosophies that have always created dystopias and little slices of hell on earth, that's where we're going to put our confidence. Oh, friends, I, I pray that that's not where your confidence lies. I pray that you listen to the words of Paul as he gave these, these promises to the Ephesians, as he pointed out to them the power of God, and that you will make closing with him the most important thing that you ever do, for it is the most important thing. Marriage is a wonderful thing, and it two people become one flesh. I love to do marriages, even though they are some of the most stressful things you can ever participate in. But nonetheless, even marriage with its closeness and its union is as nothing compared to the believer's union with Christ. It's only an analogy, a shadow, a reflection of it. That coming to Christ is the most important thing that can happen in the life. And I pray that for those of you who have not yet come to him, that you would tarry no longer and that you would flee to Christ before it's too late. Let's go before him now. God, our Father, I do pray now, Lord, that you would cause those who are not yet in you who have not known the power of your life-changing work, that this would, this would be the day that they do have that change, that radical change, that root change, where their hearts of stone are replaced with hearts of flesh. I pray, O oh Lord, that they would know uh, the sweetness of knowing you. I pray, Lord, that they would have the, the joy of their salvation. And I pray for those who, who perhaps have grown cold in their faith, Lord, who have grown to doubt that you would restore to them the joy of their salvation, that you would remind them of your promises, that you would remind them that the one who made these promises is your own dear son, Jesus Christ, and he is incapable of lying. In him, all of your promises are yea and amen. He has told us what is to come. Let us therefore grasp hold of that and walk in this life by faith and with boldness, knowing that our hope is certain and not merely a maybe it'll happen, oh Lord. We do pray.